Hello and welcome back to the Catacomb Synod Basics, where we look at the distinctives of the Catacomb Synod, which is a fully confessional Lutheran Synod. However, it is also a free Lutheran group, very congregational. It is a decentralized house church network full of people who want Lutheranism that means it. Now we are continuing going through the Augsburg Confession where we're talking about these Lutheran distinctives in the context of our modern era. What do they mean to us? Now of course the Book of Concord isn't Bible. Not every single word is inspired, but we do hold to it because it is an accurate and true interpretation of the Word of God. By context, by the circumstances of today, we're talking about what that looks like or how we in the Catacomb Synod are going to see things differently than, say, the Missouri Synod or the Wisconsin Synod or even the ELS. So we turn here to Article 9 of the Augsburg Confession, which says, It is taught among us that baptism is necessary and that grace is offered through it. Children, too, should be baptized, for in baptism they are committed to God and become acceptable to him. On this account, the Anabaptists, who teach that infant baptism is not right, are rejected. So, Deacons in the Catacomb Synod, in union with all Lutherans for the past 500 some odd years, are willing to baptize babies. We are willing to baptize adults who have not been baptized with the Trinitarian formulation as our Lord Christ commands. And we also understand, as with Dr. Luther and with all Lutherans, because the Word of God says so, that baptism is a sacrament. It confers the grace of God upon us. In your baptism, you are born again. And the merits of Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, all of the benefits of our Lord for conversion happen at your baptism. We don't care about the order of operations, whether the Holy Spirit comes upon you before or after or during your baptism. We're not concerned with any of that. What we're concerned with is that our Lord Jesus told us that you must be born again of water and the Spirit. And our Lord Jesus told us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How do you make a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ? The very first step is baptism. Now that said, a little bit of a distinctive here. We are willing to re-baptize somebody if there is a doubt that they were ever baptized. What do I mean by this? There have been circumstances in my pastoral experience where somebody comes up to me and asks to be baptized. Now, as a Lutheran minister, I have to ask if they have been baptized before, because St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is only one baptism. In the Nicene Creed, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. But the individual who came to me said he didn't know. 
the individual that supposedly baptized him as a baby was infamous for baptizing people by just saying, I now baptize you, welcome to the family of God. At some point, he baptized people with the Trinitarian formula, as he had been commanded to do by our Lord, but as he slid into liberal Christianity, he just didn't care anymore, leaving the individual who came to me sorely confused. There was no video. There was maybe a baptismal record, but nobody could find it. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, we at the Catacomb Synod are more than willing to say, if you don't know, then we are willing to baptize you. A confirmatory baptism, a just-in-case. If there is that doubt, let us settle the matter by baptizing you once. For indeed, our Lord is the one who makes baptism work. It is not up to us. If somebody were to come to us saying, oh, I've been baptized like five times in various evangelical churches, but I'm not sure that it took, our response to that is, you need to trust what the Word of God says about your baptism. The first one was the real one, and you didn't have to get re-baptized. It would be blasphemy for us to baptize you again. However, if there is a doubt that anybody was first baptized at all, or if they were baptized in a oneness Pentecostal church or a Mormon church where they don't do baptism correctly, then we must joyfully baptize this individual. Even if they just don't remember, it's our job to joyfully do this, to not withhold this means of grace that our Lord Christ has blessed us all with. Now moving along, we get to Article 10, the Holy Supper of our Lord. It is taught among us that the true body and blood of Christ are really present in the supper of our Lord under the form of bread and wine and are there distributed and received. The contrary doctrine is therefore rejected. For all of our house churches, the deacons are trained to consecrate the elements in communion. We are going to get to that in a moment. But they are also, as I have been trained, to teach our mouths to say, I don't know, regarding the specific mechanics of communion. We understand that there is a great amount of mystery there. Our Lord Christ says, Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Yet St. Paul also says that the bread is there and the wine is there. Both are true. Both statements are inspired Holy Scripture. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess in unity with the rest of the church that Jesus is there with his real body and his real blood and bread and wine are there. And we might add that we do believe this is a physical eating in a sacramental way. Now, somebody might balk at that because the formula of Concord in its English translations say that it's not a physical eating, but that's a mistranslation of a word that means earthly, caperneitic. You are not cannibalizing Christ. You are not chewing on a toe. But he is truly there in such fashion that his body and blood are physically there along with the elements in communion. 
but the eating and drinking of Christ's body and his blood is in a sacramental fashion. So it is not digested through stomach acid in the same way that the bread and the wine are. It is mysterious, but we simply confess what the scripture teaches on this matter. But the Catacomb Synod has a distinction here regarding church discipline. Historically, there has been the minor ban and there has been the major ban. A minor ban means you are barred from the table of the Lord on account of sin. The major ban is excommunication in which anathema is pronounced upon you. Here's the problem. Historically, bad churches have used the minor ban and the major ban, excommunication, as a tool to get what they want out of people rather than as a godly and loving measure of church discipline. Now, some might claim there's only the lesser ban, where you're barred from communion, but in practice there is hard excommunication where the church says, you're going to hell. We don't really do that for people under the minor ban, where we say, hey, you're dealing with a sin problem, you gotta repent. And as somebody who holds the office of the keys, binding and loosing sins, I do not want you eating and drinking judgment unto yourself. Okay, we recognize that Christ says there is forgiveness of sins in the cup at communion. This is most certainly true. Therefore, if an impenitent sinner is admitted to the table and he eats and drinks judgment unto himself, that can reflect a failure of the pastor to adequately employ the use of the keys. However, comma, we need to be careful regarding the minor ban, as well as the major ban. The minor ban can be misused. If a pastor charges a man with sin where there is no sin, if he uses an imaginary sin, then guess what? That pastor has illegitimately employed church discipline. You are friends with people I don't like. I find them morally reprehensible, therefore don't take communion. You expressed an opinion publicly. You protested against a move of the church. How dare you? This is not respecting our oh-so-holy and infallible authority. Therefore, you are under the minor ban. There is a name for such activity. It's called enthusiasm. Where out of somebody's own heart and imagination, they believe God is speaking where God has not spoken. The minor ban can be twisted in order to twist somebody's arm. To say, you are going to do what I say, and you are going to behave in the way that I wish for you to behave, or else you are going to suffer. Is that godly? No, that is blasphemous. Our deacons have been instructed to be incredibly careful regarding this matter, especially because the minor ban should not be a judgment call. What do I mean by that? 
If somebody comes up to you at the table for communion and you simply refuse them because you have a feeling that they have not repented of their sin enough, then you are denying that God's word does what it says it does regarding confession and absolution. If a pastor says, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of the divine service. Then he just makes this snap judgment call because he's uncomfortable with a guy taking communion. He is not trusting God's word. He is either not trusting the words of 1 John chapter 1, 8 and 9, or worse, yet he does not believe that the forgiveness which he offers is the forgiveness of God himself. Or even worse, he thinks he's a wizard. He thinks he can magically understand the full contents of somebody's heart right then and there. Either one of those three options betrays a worldview that says the pastor is the Lord of the sacrament, rather than a servant administering it. The minister consecrating the elements in Holy Communion and distributing them should take the mind of a servant, especially since we cannot read the minds of everybody coming up to the table. The believer has some responsibility there. They should examine themselves as we are all called to do. The pastor is not a king in his little fiefdom distributing goodies as he pleases. He is not the welfare office worker distributing food and goods if people pass the background check. The believer has some responsibility regarding their sanctification. They are supposed to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit in these matters. And it's okay to say, I'm going to trust my laity. There's nothing wrong with that. The minor ban should not be a weapon wielded to force complete conformity upon the laity. To the contrary, it should be a gesture of love. Like excommunication, it should be about loving the individual who has become caught up in uh, egregious sin or impenitent sin, and it should be based on objective fact. It should be based on the word of God. You know for a fact this individual has not repented of a real sin. The minister is required to go to this individual before the church service has started and to say, hey, I've heard that you have this issue, or you came to me for confession and you refused to forgive your neighbor, you have a porn habit that you don't see anything wrong with it. We're supposed to go to them and say, like, hey, we need to fix this. This just can't go on. And I don't want you eating and drinking judgment for yourself. We reach out in care and agape love for these souls. And if they do not wish to change, if they say, I refuse to forgive, or I'm not going to look at porn as a sin, I'm just going to enjoy it, then we say, 
All right, I don't want you eating and drinking judgment unto yourself. Please refrain from taking the sacrament this Sunday. That's how the minor band should look. And then we check on them. We care for them. This is part of being a seal soga, a soul carer, rather than a petty tyrant juggling imaginary sins from the pulpit. Now that said, excommunication is also a dire matter where their faith has lapsed. And we look at these individuals also with care, but we go the extra step. St. Paul says, turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that they might have eternal life. We withhold fellowship from them. In the catacomb synod, this looks like that individual being permitted, if safe, to attend services However, they do not get the benefits of having the deacon as a servant, and they're going to miss out on fellowship time. They can't take communion. They're there to hear the word of God, that our Lord's word might inspire faith in them once more. But again, it's got to be from a place of care, not wielding authority. But I digress. Enough of that rant regarding discipline in the church and how the catacomb synod does it. Let's turn to Acts chapter 6, because somebody listening might be asking, why are deacons allowed to do this? Why are we saying that deacons are permitted to enact the minor ban if necessary, and that should be rare, by the way? Why are we saying that they are permitted to consecrate the elements in the Eucharist? Let's go to Acts chapter 6 and read here. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. The apostles established the office of deacon so that, as they say in verse 4, they can devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, all of the apostles, being properly ordained by our Lord Christ, had a word and sacrament ministry. They say they want to devote themselves here to the ministry of the word. And the daily needs of the laity are going to be neglected if the apostles are stretched so thin. So somebody has to come in and help. Thus comes in the office of deacon. A deacon is to a pastor what a nurse is to a doctor. And they choose these men, and they set hands on them. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, 
meaning that this is an ordination to a ministry. You do not lay your hands on somebody in this church context unless it is a proper ordination. Now, the deacon office is not the ministry of the word. In fact, the apostles established the diaconate in order to focus on the ministry of the word, meaning the deacon has a different job. And if it is still a ministry, we all understand ministry is word and sacrament, therefore the deacon is ordained as a minister, an under-minister, to the ministry of sacrament. And a little bit more, of course, as the daily distribution of bread here in verses 1 and 2 is not just regarding the table of the Lord at communion. There are real human needs that deacons are there to help meet. Visiting people, visiting shut-ins, hopefully helping young men get jobs and wives and helping young women get husbands and helping their families. A deacon is supposed to be a servant who can also consecrate the elements, baptize, and pronounce absolution. Now, regarding teaching, in the house church context, we follow the model of St. Stephen in chapter 7, who gives a message to the Pharisees. A deacon is not ordained to word and sacrament. He is only ordained to sacrament. However, he may be a witness that passes along what he receives. We know that God approves of St. Stephen's speech to the Pharisees because he appears before St. Stephen in the sky before he is stoned to death. One would think that if St. Stephen had willfully disobeyed the office of deacon and started teaching word where he was not permitted, God would not have taken him up to heaven then. Yet here, he passes along what was granted to him by those ordained to word and sacrament, by the apostles, the ministers of the church. So deacons and lay leaders too, by the way, every Christian has the right to witness to and pass along what he has received. They have the ability to run a service and to read off or play audio from or summarize messages from an ordained minister, one ordained to word and sacrament. In the catacomb synod, by necessity, that is yours truly, me, the director, passing along these sermons, putting them up on the website in PDF form, and giving the liturgy for people to use. One day, we hope to have fully ordained ministers so that I am not the only one doing this, but in the meantime, this is a perfectly acceptable state of affairs for us to glorify God by real word and sacrament ministry given to the laity in the Catacomb Synod. Next week, we will discuss how absolution is going to be working and whether we should be including private confession and absolution. Perhaps we'll get into a little bit of compensation for deacons, etc., but until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.